We're in a series about the life of Joseph. And today I want to talk to you about a message that God gave my heart uh, last week. And it's, it's a message I want to call Waiting and Wondering. Waiting and Wondering. Have you ever been waiting on God to show up? You ever been wondering for God to do something to get you out of a problem or a stress or a trial of your life? I don't think I'm the only one. A few years ago, several years ago now, actually, I went through a, a very difficult time personally and professionally. And, and you know, something that on Sunday mornings you get up and you smile and everything is great. But deep down, I was hurting. And this went on for about three years. And I did everything I knew to do to right the wrong, to fix a relationship, uh, to solve a problem. And yet I finally just had to say, there's nothing more I can do. And there's a question that came to my heart. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? Have you ever been in that position where you say, there's just nothing more that I can do? I've done everything I know to do to fix this problem, to heal this relationship, or to overcome this financial struggle, or to uh, overcome this, this trouble that I'm going through. And you feel like you're at your wit's end. You, you feel like you've reached the end of your rope, and there's just nothing else that you can do. And one thing that I, I know over those three years fleetingly would struggle with, and that's the feeling, God, have you forgotten me? There again, maybe I'm the only one who's ever felt that way in times of suffering or confusion or when you're just being done wrong. And I wonder, God, where are you? I try to live for you. I try to be a good pastor. I try to preach your word. I try to take care of my family. I try to treat everybody well. I try to be a man of integrity. And rather than getting rewarded, this is what I get. And you just wonder, God, have you forgotten me? And that's the funny thing about suffering. In suffering, we're tempted to forget God. But then let me just also confess, during good times, I'm tempted to, to forget God. I think in suffering, he's forgotten me. But in good times, I often forget him and take him for granted. But, you know, in those moments, God would always bring me back to himself. That even though I was going through a difficult time, God had not forgotten me. That God is not forgetful. He is faithful. And that while I was waiting, he was working. And I think there's someone here today who needs to hear this truth today. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you're struggling with. But there may be this moment where you wonder, God, what do you do when there's nothing I can do? And what you can do is remember that God is faithful. God has not forgotten you. So once I came back to my faith in God, recognizing that he is still here, I would often talk to him in prayer. Now, some of my prayers were very self-centered and simple. Sometimes I would simply pray about my problem. God, when will I get out of this? Okay, you're still there. You're still at work. I still believe in you. So here's my question, God. When will I get out of this? When will this be over? In my mind, I thought it would be easier to persevere if I knew an end date if God said, oh, just for one more week, you're going to have to deal with this, and then I'm going to come through for you. Well, okay, I can handle another week or a month or a year. But God wouldn't give me a time frame. God would not say, here's the calendar, and you'll see the X, and that's the end date of when you can stop living by faith and trusting me, and you'll have all the answers. No, he wanted to teach me that I was going to have to trust him no matter what, no matter how long, no matter how many questions I had. And over that three-year period, God changed my question from when will I get out of this to what will I get out of this? God, what will I get out of this? God, what are you doing in my life? If you are not forgetful, but you're faithful, if while I'm waiting, you're working, 
then what will I get out of this? What is it that you're trying to do in my life? What lesson do you want me to learn? What skill do I need to develop? What are you up to in my life? And we see the same pattern in Joseph's life, that God had Joseph waiting, but God was still working. In fact, God was working behind the scenes in Joseph's life to prepare him for a future that was far greater than he could ever imagine. But he had to trust God in the meantime. And what I want to do today is take you to Genesis chapter 40. And in Genesis chapter 40, I want you to see what God was up to in Joseph's life. Because the same thing God was doing in Joseph's life by making him wait, he wants to do in your life when you find yourself in a situation where you're having to wait on God to come through for you. And you say, well, what is it? Well, you're going to have to just walk through this with me and you'll discover it along with me. But if you recall, in Genesis chapter 40, we find Joseph in prison. He's not in prison because he has done something wrong. He is in prison because he's done something right. If you recall, when he was 17 years old, he was the favored son of his father. He was the youngest. He had 10 other older brothers. Joseph was immature in many ways, but he was a godly young man. He also expressed his immaturity at times. For example, he would tell on his brothers when they did something wrong, and that didn't engender him to the brothers when he would tattletale to daddy. He also had a vision. He had a dream from God that one day he, even though he was the youngest, would be at the head of his family, including over his father. And when he told those dreams to his brothers and his family, they resented him for it. In fact, the Bible says the brothers hated him. Hated him. Wanted to kill him. And so one day they decide to kill him. And then they have a change of plans. And they decide to throw him in the pit and leave him for dead. One of the brothers, Benjamin, said he would come back and rescue him from the other brothers. But then they all came up with the grand idea to sell him into slavery. <laughs> you thought you had a bad family? Uh, this is a dysfunctional family. They put the, the fun in dysfunctional. And so they sold Joseph to the Ishmaelite traders who then sold him to an Egyptian army officer named Potiphar. And there he is, 17 years old, being taken hundreds of miles away from home to a pagan land to serve as a common household slave. And the funny thing is, the Bible says over and over, and the Lord was with Joseph. I mean, every time things go from bad to worse, the Bible says, and the Lord was with Joseph. You couldn't blame Joseph for saying, hey, God, maybe you don't want to be with me so much. Because it seems like the more you're with me, the harder things get in my life. Go be with my brothers if you want to you know, be with somebody and get them in trouble. So we find Joseph in the house of Potiphar, and he's such a young man of integrity and skill and success that Potiphar decides to put him in charge of his whole household. So now he's the boss under Potiphar of everything and everyone, only one person off limits to Joseph, and that is Mrs. Potiphar. And yet being a handsome young man, she looks at him, lusts for him, commands him to sleep with her. And when he rebuffs her, she then accuses him of rape. He is falsely accused on circumstantial evidence, and he is thrown into prison. That's where we find Joseph now. Oh, and by the way, the end of the chapter 39 says, and the Lord was with him. Yep, the Lord's still there, even though now he's in prison. And the Lord makes him successful, even in prison. Such 
success that the warden of the prison eventually, we don't know how much time goes by between when he arrives and when he is promoted, but eventually the warden of the prison puts Joseph in charge of the whole prison and all the prisoners. So Genesis chapter 40, verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh, like any good king, would have servants, and he had a chief cupbearer and a chief baker. The job of the chief cupbearer was to oversee all of the wine and the drinks that would be served to Pharaoh and to Pharaoh's guest. This cupbearer would also serve as a, a, a taste tester to make sure that the drink was good and it was not poisoned. He literally would put his life on the line for Pharaoh. The chief baker was in charge of all the food that would be fed to Pharaoh and to Pharaoh's guests. And there again, it had to be the choicest foods. It had to be good. It had to be clean. It had to be pure because you don't want to get your king sick and you don't want anyone to assassinate your king by poisoning your king. So just like the chief cupbearer would taste the drink before Pharaoh, the chief baker would also taste the food before he served the food. Somehow, though, they offend Pharaoh. We don't know the details behind this offense. We don't know if uh, there was just a bad meal and maybe Pharaoh got sick and assumed someone or maybe these two were trying to assassinate him or maybe they were just derelict in their duties or maybe Pharaoh was having a bad day. Um, but either way, they committed an offense against the Lord, the king of Egypt. Verse 2, And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. Ah, look at there. Some people would read verse 3 and say, What a coincidence! that the two chief advisors to Pharaoh end up in the same prison as our godly young man, Joseph, who by this point is now in his 20s. But there's no coincidence in the kingdom of God. This is not coincidence. This is divine providence where God is orchestrating events so that Joseph meets people who will be instrumental in his life in the future. He doesn't understand all this at this point. All he knows is we've got two new prisoners these aren't your ordinary prisoners. These are two servants of Pharaoh, and Joseph finds them in prison with him. Verse 4, the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attached them, or he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. Verse 6. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? Seems like a silly question, doesn't it? Maybe they would say, We're in prison, dude. That's why. But Joseph knew there was something different about them today. There, there's a greater, more intense sadness on their faces and he, he's so sensitive spiritually that he saw it, he noticed it, and he even cared enough to ask. There's something beautiful about Joseph in his character that no matter how bad things are, you never see him with a bad attitude. You never see him resentful, bitter, 
You never see him selfish, only concerned about himself. Even here, what a picture of a young man who's concerned about these two people who have been committed to his charge in prison. And so he asked them, why are your faces downcast today? Verse 8, they said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So they're saying we had, we had some troubling dreams. Each one of us had a dream last night. And we, we can't make sense of it. We don't know what it means. Now in that culture, dreams often were filled with significance for these people. That They had dreams and they would have people to interpret their dreams to help them understand. And there again, Joseph says, well, don't interpretations belong to God? Not your false gods, but the one true living God of Israel, my God. Why don't you tell me your dream? And it was Joseph's way of saying, God's still at work, and if God wants to give me the interpretation of your dream, then you'll have what you want, and you will see that God is real, and I'll give glory to God, because this isn't about me. It's about God. Interpretations of dreams comes from God. And so there again, Joseph is showing that even though he's suffering, he's still willing to serve God. He doesn't fold his arms and say, well, God, I'm not living for you until you work for me, until you fix things in my life. No, he's making the best of even these bad situations. So we won't read verses 9 through 13, but the chief cupbearer goes first. He says, well, in my dream, I dreamed of a vine, and on the vine there were three branches. And those branches blossomed, and the clusters of grapes were big and beautiful. And in my dream, I held Pharaoh's cup in my hand. And so I took the clusters of grapes and I squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup. What does this dream mean? And Joseph tells him, well, those three branches represent three days. In three days, Pharaoh is going to lift your head and he's going to restore you to your position and you will pour wine in Pharaoh's cup again. This is awesome. This is a good interpretation for the chief cupbearer. He knows in three days I'll be free, I'll be restored, I'll be back to where I need to be, and I'll be vindicated. And then notice Joseph asks one thing in return. Verse 14, Joseph says, Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Joseph says, I'm only asking you to do one thing for me. When you go back to Pharaoh, remember me. Just mention my name. After all, I know all the prisoners here are innocent, but I certainly am innocent. I've done nothing wrong. I don't deserve this. And if you'll put in a good word for me, of how I've been kind to you and how God's used me to interpret your dream, then maybe just maybe Pharaoh will show kindness to me and let me out. Remember me. Don't forget me. Then you'll see in verses 16 through 19, we won't read each of these verses, the chief baker decides to share his dream so that Joseph could interpret his dream as well. He said, well, the cupbearer got a favorable interpretation. There's probably a favorable interpretation in it for me as well. So he, he tells his dream. I dreamed that I had three baskets on my head. And in that top basket, it was filled with all sorts of baked goods. The choicest baked goods of Egypt. 
But the birds kept sweeping down and eating all the food out of that top basket on my head. (laughs) And Joseph recognizes in this moment, by the inspiration of God, the interpretation of this dream. And it is not good news. But rather than mincing words, rather than trying to make it more palatable, Joseph just shares the the interpretation. By the way, a little parenthetical thought here. Any good preacher or Bible teacher will just simply preach and teach the word and not seek to make it palatable or politically correct to get people's approval. If you don't like the message, take it up with God. It's his message. I'm just the messenger. Amen? But there are people that got itching ears and they want preachers to tell them what they want to hear. But Joseph was not that kind of person. And he said, well, here's the interpretation of your dream. Those three baskets represent three days. And in three days, Pharaoh is going to lift your head off your body. And he is going to impale you and hang you on a stake. And the birds are going to eat your dead carcass. And all of God's people said, you know, Granny never crocheted that one and hung it on her wall at home. That's just not a scripture verse that you commit to memory. That's not one that you say, what can I get out of this proverb? This was for the chief baker. And notice what happens. Verse 20. On the third day, which was Potiphar's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet, listen to verse 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. You can almost imagine, after those three days went by, and eventually Pharaoh calls for the chief cupbearer and baker to be brought back to the palace, that Joseph is getting things ready. He knows that the chief cupbearer is going to remember him and mention his name to Pharaoh, and that any moment he's going to get out of this. And so he waits. And he hears the, the word That Pharaoh has restored the chief cupbearer, but he has executed the chief baker, just like Joseph had interpreted the dreams. Joseph is is probably thinking, I'm getting out of here tonight. And then the night comes and Joseph is still in prison. Perhaps he rationalized, well, you know, they had a party. It's Pharaoh's birthday. There's a lot going on. Uh, The the cupbearer got busy. Surely he will tell Pharaoh in the morning and mention my name. And I'll get out of here tomorrow. Tomorrow comes and goes, and Joseph is still in prison. And another day, and another night, and a week, and two weeks, and a month, and months, and two years go by. And Joseph is still in prison because the cupbearer forgot him. We are not told how Joseph felt about this, but you could not blame Joseph for thinking even in a fleeting moment, if the cupbearer forgot me, has God forgotten me? Doesn't seem that Joseph ever thought that way, but I sometimes do. That God, I'm serving you, I'm living for you, I'm trying to do the right thing, and yet I'm suffering as a result of that. In fact, some days it feels like my life would be easier if I didn't live for you. If I didn't try to do the right thing, if I just went along like everybody else and did what everybody else does, God, have you forgotten me? 
But Joseph, once again, demonstrates a quality that I admire and, and aspire to. It was confidence in God no matter what. Because he knew that God is not forgetful. God is faithful. And that while I'm waiting, God is working. You see, God had given Joseph a dream many years ago when he was a teenager. A dream that one day God would exalt him and use him in a mighty way. Joseph didn't understand all the ways God was going to fulfill that dream. He didn't understand the timing of when God was going to fulfill that dream. All Joseph knew was that God is not forgetful. He doesn't forget his promises. He doesn't forget his people. And God is at work even while I'm waiting. I may not see it. I may not understand it. But God is at work behind the scenes to accomplish something that only he could accomplish. In fact, God was up to something grand. He was, he was in a construction project in Joseph's life. And the same thing God was at work building in Joseph, he's at work in you, building in you. You say, what is it? What is he doing? Well, go to the New Testament book of James, chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, and you'll hear what our, our Lord's half-brother said. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said in James, chapter 1, verse 2, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Now, now be, be careful here. James is not saying, be glad you're suffering. That's not what he's saying. He's not a masochist. He's saying, be grateful that something good can come out of this trial that you're going through. He says, for you know that when your faith is tested, that's what trials are. That's what suffering is. It is a testing of your faith. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. Maybe your translation of the Bible says your patience or your perseverance has a chance to grow. So when your faith is tested, God is strengthening your perseverance, your patience, your endurance. He is making you stronger to withstand the storms of life by allowing you to go through these testing times. James says, so let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. God is taking you through this to prepare you for something else. And he knows you've got to get stronger before he can use you in a mighty way down the road. This test is to strengthen your faith. In fact, testing really does two things. First of all, trials and troubles and testings Show the authenticity of your faith. Anyone can claim to have faith in God during good times. It's during the trials of life that our true, authentic faith is shown to be real. And, and the word faith, what does that even mean? That sounds like a Bible word. It is. It's like this nebulous word. We'll have faith. Well, what does that mean? Well, maybe another way to put it is trials show the authenticity of your confidence in God. That's what faith is. Faith is confidence in God. I am confident that God is real. I am confident that God is good. I am confident that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek to live for Him and to have a relationship with Him. I am confident that God can make all things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. I am confident that God is at work in time and in eternity in my life. And I am confident 
that I can trust God with all of my questions and fears and trials and tribulations. So the first thing you might want to note is troubles show the authenticity of our faith, but troubles strengthen the authenticity of our faith. James says God is strengthening your endurance, your ability to hold up under trials. The Christian faith never promises you a life free from suffering. Why would we ever expect a life free from suffering? We follow and worship a suffering Savior who suffered with us in this life and suffered for us on the cross of Calvary. But the writer of Hebrews would remind us in Hebrews chapter 12 that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. He was on the race course of life before you, and he ran his race, and he finished it to the glory of God the Father. And he is the author and finisher of our faith who, the Bible says, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has now sat down at the right hand of God the Father. You say, what joy could Jesus find in the cross? It wasn't the cross. It was what God was going to do through the cross that brought him joy. Jesus knew on the other side of the cross and the crown of thorns was a crown of life and a crown of righteousness and a crown of vindication. Jesus knew on the other side of groaning would be the glory of resurrection. Jesus knew on the other side of death, there would be life. And Jesus knew on the other side of the resurrection would be the day of Pentecost where the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is born into the world and all the way down to the year 2020 with all of its ugliness that 2 billion people on planet earth will say on a Sunday morning, Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior. That's the joy that enabled him to endure the cross. Amen. And that even while he waited in the tomb, he knew God was working. And I don't know what you're going through, but I want you to know this. God is not forgetful. He is faithful. And God is working while you are waiting. Adversity is not a sign that God is absent from your life. Adversity is a sign that God is active in your life. Just last week, Donna texted me. My wife texted me. And she said, I kept, I kept hearing this song on the radio a Christian song, and it's sung by a man, but then I would hear the female backup, and it sounded like Dolly Parton. She said, I kept hearing it while I was at work, and I thought, it sounds like Dolly Parton. There must be some new artist out there that sounds just like Dolly Parton. And so she did a little research. No, that is Dolly Parton, along with Zach Williams singing a song, There Was Jesus. Don't know if you've heard that song but in fact, I love giving you guys homework, and I'm going to give you homework this week, and it's really easy. I want you to go to YouTube, and I want you to watch the music video of the song, There Was Jesus, by Zach Williams and Dolly Parton. Because I had not heard it. I then went and listened to it after Donna told me. Some of the lyrics say, every time I try to make it on my own, every time I try to stand, I start to fall. And all those lonely roads that I have traveled on, there was Jesus. When the life I built came crashing to the ground, when the friends I had were nowhere to be found, I couldn't see it then, but I see it now. There was Jesus. In the waiting, in the searching, in the healing, in the hurting, like a blessing buried in the broken pieces, every minute, every moment, where I've been or where I'm going, even when I didn't know it, 
or couldn't see it, there was Jesus. Some of you need to hear this today. He's with you. He hasn't forgotten you. He is at work in your life. He's going to bring you through. And you're going to be stronger on the other side. And one day you'll be like Joseph, being able to give God praise and glory for what he's done for you. I want to lead us in a word of prayer where we rededicate ourselves to him. Like David, we rededicate ourselves to him. Saying, Jesus, I recommit myself to you because you've always been committed to me. Have your will and way in my life. Draw me closer to yourself, even during times of testing. And maybe today, for the first time in your life, you'll receive Jesus as your Savior. If you need to do that today, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. Talk to him where you sit. And the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you so much for being with us today, for speaking to us through the story of Joseph. And thank you for reminding us today that while we are waiting, you are working. It may only be in hindsight that we see what you were up to and how you were strengthening our faith, building our confidence in you, making us better. But God, we trust you in the meantime. and We recommit ourselves to you today. Thank you for never leaving us nor forsaking us, even when others do. God, we also pray if there's someone in this place today who's never received Jesus as their Savior, that in this moment, without making any more excuses, they would come to you in faith, asking for the forgiveness of their sin, and placing their confidence in Jesus for the gift of eternal life. He is the one who died, was buried, and rose from the dead on the third day to be their Lord and their Savior, and to be the price for their forgiveness. And I pray that right now in the stillness of this moment, if they need Jesus, they would say to you, Dear Lord Jesus, I turn from my sin. I put my trust in you. I commit my life to you as my Lord and my Savior. Help me now to learn more about you, to not be ashamed of you, and to grow in my relationship with you in the days ahead. And while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, if you've prayed to receive Jesus or you want to take a next step in your journey with Jesus, let me know that. Go to our website, fcbc.life, and just click on that Connect card and let us know which decision you're making today. Maybe it's to trust Christ. Maybe it's to be baptized. Maybe it's to connect with our church or to find a small group of friends in our church that you can do life with. Whatever we can do to help you, take that next step. Heavenly Father, have your perfect will and way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.